Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 40. So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and go there. Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 40. And when you get there, instead of saying, I got it, I want you to say, hallelujah. All right, so when you get there, give me a hallelujah. There it is. If you don't have a Bible, it will be on the screen behind me uh, in my translation, the ESV. Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 40. And this is what the word of the Lord says. And when he, Jesus, had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And so earlier this year, you may have seen it, the United Kingdom crowned their new monarch, right? Charles III. Now, I'm not a fan of the British monarch, right? Um, Almost everything I have learned about them, I have learned against my will. Uh, But I did learn this, that this year's ceremony or crowning um, of the new ruler in the United Kingdom was actually considered a very scaled back event compared to other coronations. This year, King Charles' crowning only cost about $125 million, right? That's pretty meager in comparison to some of the others. And so while a quarter of London citizens are living in poverty, the British monarch just spent some of that money on a golden carriage overladen with images of gods and goddesses. The uh, carriage is so heavy that eight horses have to pull it. And those impoverished citizens watched as their new king wore jeweled crowns, sat on a 700-year-old throne, all the while the crowd, full of dignitaries and the well-to-do, yelled out, God save King Charles, as the guns just saluted and they rang out throughout the city. Now many of us, many Americans I suspect, are not really interested in the British monarch, right? Some are. Uh, But no matter where you're at on the British monarch, it is fascinating to watch countries inaugurate or crown a a new king or a new president. And our text today is, in a sense, a coronation service. This is an official declaration by Jesus and the disciples that the king has arrived into the holy city, Jerusalem. And we see Luke set the scene for us in verses 28 through 34. Luke tells us that after Jesus told the parable of the ten minas in verses 11 through 27, that Jesus continues on his way to Jerusalem. He's been going there since about Luke chapter 9, Jesus has. 
And so Jesus gets outside Jerusalem, near the villages of Bethpage and Bethany, and near the very important Mount of Olives, which will be very important in the upcoming week in Jesus' life. And Jesus tells two of his disciples to go out into the nearest village and find a colt or find a donkey that no one has ever sat on before and bring it to Jesus. And so the disciples, they go into the village, and lo and behold, what do they find but a colt or a donkey that has never been ridden? Now, we need to stop here because some will claim, some more theologically liberal scholars and commentators, they'll say that Jesus actually went behind the back of his disciples and planned this little excursion ahead of time to make the disciples think that he kind of knew ahead of time what was happening. They argue um, that he arranged for this couple to tie their unused donkey at this specific time in this specific place so that when the disciples found it, it would be just like Jesus had said. Um, that is not what is happening here in these verses, right? Jesus is not the little man behind the curtain trying to convince everyone he's the wizard of Oz, right? He is God. The response of the owners make it clear that they were not expecting anyone to come and get this donkey. And so rather than pointing to Jesus going behind the disciples' back, this encounter, this encounter that we would probably just kind of read and skim over if we were reading this in our quiet times, speaks to the omniscience of our God. So to be omniscient is to be all-knowing. And it is something only seen in Almighty God. Jesus is revealing to his disciples that this Jewish carpenter from Nazareth, born in a stable, surrounded by shepherds and a disgraced teenage couple, is actually God in human flesh. That Jesus is both fully God and fully man. And so the exactness in which Christ communicates the animal that he has chosen and desires should tell us that something big is happening, right? Because if you notice these verses, if you look down at verse 30 through 31, we are not told what village they're in. We're not told what specific village between Bethpage and Bethany the disciples are to go into. We're not told the names of the couples. It's all very vague in general, except for the one detail of the animal that Jesus wants to ride. That is the one specific detail we are given. And so that should clue us in that something big is happening, that Jesus is revealing his foreknowledge in this moment. You see, when Jesus does that throughout the Gospels, that is a clue that something big is happening. So for example, in John chapter 4, when Jesus meets the Samaritan woman at the well, someone he's never met before, he reveals that he knows her entire relational history. Right? And that's a big moment in the Gospels because that is the first non-Jewish person to have the identity of the Messiah revealed to them. Elsewhere, when Jesus is gathering his disciples to begin his earthly ministry, he communicates to Nathaniel that he knew what Nathaniel was doing under that fig tree when Nathaniel thought no one else saw him. And so at crucial times in the Gospels, Jesus communicates what his divine mind fully knows. And so that should clue us in as we get down into verses 35 through 40 that something big is happening. That something momentous in salvation history is going on here. And so we're going to look at three aspects of this major event this morning. So for my note takers, point number one is the king's announcement. Number one, the king's announcement. You may wonder why Jesus specifically wanted a colt or a donkey to ride on. And it was be, it's, excuse me, specifically why an unridden colt 
or donkey. It was because that, that non-ridden donkeys, um, that specific animal, had ties to sacred tasks in the Old Testament. Animals that had never been ridden on represented purity. They represented cleanliness. And so it was these pure animals that were chosen for the sacred task. And so when Jesus tells his disciples to find the colt or the donkey that has never been ridden on before, he is subtly communicating that what is about to happen is a sacred moment. That what's about to happen is a holy moment. This will be a moment where just one of the many prophecies of the anticipated Savior of the world would be fulfilled. The prophet Zechariah prophesied in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. And here it is. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. It was prophesied in the Old Testament that when the Savior came, he would enter into Jerusalem on a donkey, on a colt. And so through the selection of this animal, Jesus is proclaiming to every watching eye that the King is here. This is Jesus announcing that the Savior of the world has stepped onto the stage of human history. Jesus is telling those in Jerusalem that the time of their waiting for God to send the Savior is over. They can now look at the prophecies of the Old Testament and instead of looking and trying to see how they would be fulfilled, they could read them and see that Jesus is the fulfillment. All the messianic prophecies we see in the Old Testament are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Surely some would have had 1 Kings chapter 2 in mind, or 2 Kings chapter 2, when David announces to the people of Israel that his son Solomon would be king. And Solomon enters into the city to get the kingship riding you guessed it, a mule. He rides an animal just like Jesus did. And so this selection of this animal, this little tiny detail that we would probably just skim over, is actually a gigantic announcement by Christ. That the long-awaited and prophesied Messiah from the family line of David has arrived. We don't need to wait anymore for the Savior of our souls to get here. Because He has arrived. And so even today, the events on what we call Palm Sunday, right? We typically hear this passage read the Sunday before Easter, reverberates throughout history. Still today, this event, like all the events of Holy Week, shout to us that the King has arrived. And because of this, because the King has arrived, a dividing line has been drawn between humanity, between those who will believe the message of the Christ and those who will not. And as we continue in Luke's gospel, we will see that many will reject Christ as king because they could not believe that Jesus, that God would send his Savior upon the scene of human history as a poor Jewish carpenter born to an unwed, unwed mother. Right? They wouldn't believe it. They would not believe that God would choose to sit with and save sinners and prostitutes and tax collectors. They wouldn't believe it. In their minds, that is not something their God would do. And again, nothing has changed from the time of Jesus. Today, people reject Christ as king either outrightly, they don't want anything to do with him, or they reject him in a more subtle way. They reject him by twisting and shaping the Jesus that is seen in Scripture into a Jesus that is more palpable for them. A Jesus that it's easier to believe in. 
They reject Jesus by forming for themselves a Jesus who doesn't tell them to take up their cross and die. Right? They twist Jesus into someone who would never dare say that it is hard for a rich person to get into heaven. They twist and mold Jesus like a piece of Play-Doh and reject his words on hell and eternal judgment. Right? That is a more subtle way that we may reject the Christ today. But to not follow Christ the King as he has revealed himself is, not, is to not follow the King at all. Because the king has revealed himself, we don't get a choice or say in the matter how he operates. He is the king. And so to not follow him as he has revealed and announced himself is to not follow the king at all. To use Jesus merely as a wish-granting deity or a mascot for whatever political movement we're passionate about this week is to reject Christ. If we are to follow Jesus, if we are called to be disciples of Christ, then we must follow Jesus as he has revealed himself. He is king, and we do not get the chance or the opportunity to twist and shape him into the Jesus we want him to be. You see, too many people reject Jesus because he's not like them. They assume that if God were to reveal himself on the scene of human history, that he would agree with every single thing we do and say and think, and he would be more like us. But if we are sinners, if we are imperfect people, then it has to be true that God, when he shows up on the scene, will not be like us. And that we will have to die to ourselves to follow him. And so the triumphal entry, this Palm Sunday event, is a proclamation of the king's arrival. And it's a proclamation not made by mere mortals, but it is made by the king himself. It is made by Jesus the Christ. So we see the king's announcement. But not only do we see that, but we also see the king's humility. So for my note takers, point number two, the king's humility. We mentioned earlier the uh, coronation or the crowning of King Charles and how expensive and lavish that ceremony was. And that sort of lavish, over-the-top coronation, that's not just unique to England, right? Right? In 1977, you may have missed this one, Bangui, which was the capital of the Central African Empire, you know, they crowned their new imperial majesty, Bokasa I. I think I'm pronouncing that right. The price tag for that coronation was, again, a meager $25 million. It consisted of a procession including the heir to the throne wearing a white admiral uniform and a gold braid. Also in the procession was Bokasa's favorite of his nine wives, Uh, wearing a $73,000 dress. When the new king came forward, the world press watched as they saw him clothed in a 32-pound robe, decorated with 785,000 pearls and gold embroidery. Right? They stood in silence as they watched the new king put on his $2.5 million crown. Unless we think our country would never do that, would never spend that much money on an inauguration, the last non-COVID-affected presidential inauguration cost $200 million. And so what's, forget, what's forgotten amidst all that glitz and glamour and fashion and celebration is that these men, King Charles, Bokasa, and, and the president, are but mere mortals. That their reign will come to an end one day. In the case of Bokasa I, he was king over that country for two years, and then someone uh, upstaged him. And so these men, during these celebrations that are so uh, 
what's the word I'm looking for? Majestic, extravagant, right? We forget that they're mere mortals and that they're going to die. And that from the dust they were created into the dust they will return. And yet here we see Jesus, the eternal Son of God, the one through whom and for whom all things have been created, the one whom all of human history centers on, here at his arrival into his royal city as king, there are no royal crowns, there's no golden thrones, there's no political figures waiting for him with gifts in hand. There's nothing but a crowd of societal misfits who have come to believe in him as Messiah. There is no golden carriage. There's no army of soldiers leading him into the city. You see, Pilate, someone we're going to meet in Luke's gospel narrative, he had his own procession, and his procession included cavalry on horses, foot soldiers, leather armor, golden eagles mounted on poles. The crowd would have to shield their eyes because the sun reflecting on the gold and the silver would blind them. And yet the only thing Jesus has is a donkey. And it's not even a donkey he owns. It's a donkey he had to borrow. And so in this, we see the king's humility. We see the humility of our king. Clarence McCartney describes it this way. He says, How strange a contrast to the triumphal entry of ancient warriors and conquerors into the cities which they had taken. This time, no wall was broken down for entry. This time, no garland hero standing in his war chariot, driving down the lane of cheering subjects past smoking altars. He wasn't followed by captive kings and princes in chains. Instead of that, when our king announces his arrival, he is a meek and lowly man riding upon the foal of a donkey. The triumphal entry reveals the humble heart of our Savior. The one to whom the stars and cosmos obey humbles himself to the point of a servant. The Apostle Paul describes Jesus in that famous hymn of Philippians 2 this way. He says, He, Jesus, was in the form of God, but did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And this humility of Christ is why Paul is able to tell Christ's followers just before those verses in Philippians 2 to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. You see, when the church commits to serving others, even at great cost, to itself. When Christians humbly think of others and when they seek to make much of Jesus more than they seek to make much of themselves, they reflect the very heart of Christ. The heart of Christ is not reflected in the self-seeking, self-glorifying, look-at-me attitude that our culture encourages and celebrates today. The heart of Christ is not reflected in that the heart of Christ is displayed to our world when believers commit to glorifying Christ and not self. And so we must ask ourselves, am I making the name of Jesus famous in my life? Or am I seeking to make my own name famous? Am I seeking to impact the community for the sake of the gospel? Or am I simply trying to boost my image and reputation and standing in the community? One way reflects the heart of Christ. 
the humility that seeks to serve others, and the other one reflects the way of the world. Are we comfortable making our life motto, not eat, pray, love, or live, laugh, love, but rather making it preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten? You know, you don't see that one on Hobby Lobby signs, do you? Preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. But if we are to be humble followers of Christ, we must be okay with the name of Jesus being made famous. We must be okay not pointing people to our own worthiness, but to the worthiness of Christ. One way to determine, Paul gives us a very practical way to determine if we're living humble lives. In Romans 12, 16, Paul says this, Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. So did you, did you catch it? Sandwiched between those two commands. Um, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Sandwiched between two commands to be humble is this command to associate with the lowly. One way we can tell is if we are living humble or prideful lives is we can ask ourselves, am I associating with the lowly? Am I willing to be seen with the downtrodden and the outcast? Or am I putting myself in a bubble full of people that look and act and talk just like me? You see, a prideful person will help someone if they can get something out of it, right? If they can put it on Facebook or have someone else put it on Facebook for them. They'll help someone if they can boost their reputation. And they'll even help someone with no recognition as long as they don't have to get their hands dirty or made a little uncomfortable. But yet a humble person will not take any of those external factors into account. A humble person will not use their status or their comfort levels or if they're an introvert or an extrovert as an excuse to not serve someone. A humble person is willing to serve when they see a need and they don't even consider worthiness or respectability in consideration. Is this not perfectly modeled for us in the life of Christ? Christ the eternal and perfect and unchanging God of the universe who dwells in unapproachable light and has never had a second of a sinful thought or motive comes down to earth to dwell with us and to die for people completely different from him. The one who created the stars sleeps under the stars. The one who created trees dies on a cross made of a tree that he made and that he goes to the cross like a lamb before its shearers silent, that Christ humbles himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, were Christ to use our sinfulness or our worthiness level as an excuse to not serve us, we would be damned. We would be eternally lost if he determined if we are saved based on our worthiness to receive it. Our salvation is rooted in the historical fact that Christ, the eternal Son of God, humbled himself to the point of death on a cross. And even then, he didn't go begrudgingly. He didn't go passive-aggressively, reminding the disciples of how awesome he is. But the book of Hebrews tells us, for the joy set before him, for the joy of seeing sinners saved and welcomed into the kingdom of God. For the joy of pleasing the Father, Jesus endured the cross, despising its shame. And so that truth right there, it both uplifts us and it humbles us. 
It uplifts us because it reminds us of the love of God and how before we loved him, he loved us first. And yet it humbles us because it shows us our need for a savior. It shows our unworthiness to receive him. And it shows our lack of humility when it comes to serving the less fortunate and those in need. But when we understand the gospel, that the eternal king of the universe is announcing himself as king with nothing but a borrowed donkey, when we believe that, that's going to propel us into serving those around us without considering their worthiness, without considering if they're respectable enough for us to serve them. We're going to serve them because it reflects the very heart of Jesus. And so the triumphal entry shows us the king's announcement. It shows us the king's humility. And the third point, it shows us the king's praise. It shows us the king's praise. In verse 35, you see the disciples showing homage to Jesus as they throw their cloaks on the colt and as they throw them on the road. And why we call this passage Palm Sunday is because the Gospel of John records the crowds waving palms when Jesus is entering the city, right? And these are signs that we don't necessarily see today, but they were signs of respect. They were signs of acknowledging that the person we are praising is royalty. The disciples, when they do this, are proclaiming Christ as King. They're praising God for all the mighty works that Christ has done. They begin to quote Psalm 118 in verse 38. They say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, if you go to Psalm 118, you will see that they actually changed a word. In the Old Testament, in Psalm 118, it's blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But the disciples change it. They say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. The disciples are praising Jesus for being the king. They are recognizing that Jesus is the one to whom peace in heaven and glory in the highest belong, right? They're invoking what the angels declared at the birth of Jesus when the angel said, peace on earth, goodwill to men. I mean, these people are full of excitement. They are excited over what is happening, that the king has arrived into the holy city. And at this point, this is where many would begin to speak about how fickle this crowd is, right? Now they would say that the same crowd that shouts Hosanna on Sunday is the same crowd yelling crucify on Friday. But the only problem with that view is that that's not the picture that the gospels paint for us, right? The crowd shouting Hosanna, if you notice in Luke, is a crowd of disciples. Now granted, they didn't fully know what Jesus was about to do. They didn't fully understand who he was, but they did know that he was a man sent from God and that he was king and so they worship. We begin to see the other crowd, the crowd that's going to yell crucify on, on Good Friday in verse 39 when we're introduced to the Pharisees. They say in verse 39, And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And Jesus answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And so right now, this is just a moment of exuberation as the holy king has entered his holy city. And no doubt the Pharisees are shocked. They're disgusted that those seeking this carpenter from Nazareth's praises, believing him to be the Messiah, they would be disgusted that the men leading this procession are men like Matthew, 
who was a tax collector and was universally hated by like everybody. He's singing the praises of Jesus. They would be appalled to see Simon the Zealot, who was more than likely a political radical, was passionate about overthrowing Rome. That guy laid down his swords and is singing praises to this carpenter as king. And besides tax collectors and political rebels, you have Mary Magdalene, of whom Jesus uh, released seven demons from. It's likely that those who have been healed by Jesus, like the blind beggar in Luke 18, that he too is right on the trail of Jesus singing his praises. It's possible that, that Zacchaeus that we met a few weeks ago, another tax collector, is with them. You would have Lazarus, the friend of Jesus who was raised from the dead. This is not a group of people that the paparazzi would be clamoring to take pictures of, right? A quick Google search if you ever wanted to know who the most photographed people on earth are. If you Google that, uh, the list contains former presidents, right? You have British royalty such as Queen Elizabeth and King Charles. You have athletes such as Roger Federer and Serena Williams. You have other celebrities like Jimmy Kimmel, Jimmy Fallon, Elton John. These are people of respectability. These are people that come with, with wealth and they have power or talent, depending on your opinion or not. Every single person on that list has some sort of power or respectability. Kids want to be like the athletes. Others want to know the move of the every move of their favorite celebrities. No child was looking up to Matthew the tax collector, right? No one was growing up wanting to be Simon the zealot. And if ancient Israel had paparazzi, I don't think they did. They were not clamoring to speak to Mary Magdalene, who was like demon possessed by seven demons. And yet it is that ragtag group of those deemed unclean, of those deemed too sinful by society. It is that ragtag group that is spreading their cloaks and worshiping the king. It's not the elite or the rich in society that is the majority of these disciples. It is the poor, it is the outcast, and it is the misfits. While the coronation of King Charles of England was attended by the elite and the well-to-do and the downtrodden and the lowly were kicked out, this announcement and arrival of the king of the universe is attended and praised by the downtrodden and the outcast. Jesus flips our expectations upside down. And is this triumphal entry, is this not a picture of what we will find in the new heavens in the, earth, in the new earth? We will not find those who think themselves good enough to be saved by their works, praising the king. That was the Pharisees, and they were off in the corner grumbling. You see, during this scene in Jesus' life, it is those who did not see their need for Christ and believe his message. They're standing off to the side, looking on in disgust. If I can put it bluntly, those who think they are good enough by their works to get into heaven will not be there. Those who think their Christian heritage and values they got from their parents or grandparents can get them into heaven, they will not be there. The ones who will sing the eternal praise of the Messiah are those who recognize their need for a Savior. Those saints gathered around the throne to give worship to the Lamb are those who believed and came to realize that they could not save themselves. And thus they threw themselves upon the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. This is a theme throughout the Gospel of Luke. It's not the Pharisee who was declared righteous, but the tax collector. 
It's not the rich young ruler who loved his stuff more than he loved Jesus who was saved, but it's the blind roadside beggar who admits his need for a Savior. Heaven is full and will be full of people who know that their salvation is not dependent upon their status or their standing in the community, but is dependent upon the work of Christ on their behalf. And it's received by repentance and faith. The disciples knew that. Lazarus and Zacchaeus and Matthew and Mary Magdalene knew that. And so believing and knowing how unworthy we are to be saved and how willing God is to give it to all who come to Christ in faith, when we believe that, that will naturally result in praising the King. The one who has experienced grace will praise. The one who has experienced Christ by faith and received forgiveness, righteousness, and the gift of eternal life will join the chorus of praise that has resounded throughout history. The person who loves God and has received mercy will praise. That's why the psalmist, when you read the book of Psalms, that's why he can command God's people to praise because it is simply a natural result of what happens when someone enters into the people of God. The person who enters the people of God by faith, experiencing mercy, will praise. I think C.S. Lewis is helpful when he talks about this inevitability of God's people praising. He says, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. It is an appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. It is frustrating to have discovered a new author and not to be able to tell anyone how good he is. To come suddenly at the turn of the road upon some mountain valley of unexpected grandeur and then to have to keep silent because the people with you care for it no more than for a tin can in the ditch. To hear a good joke and find no one to share it with. See, what Lewis is saying is that when we experience the grace that God has given, the enjoyment of that grace, the love of God that we have is not completed until we express it in praise. I mean, is this not, don't we see this in our everyday lives? Is this not the same reason college football fans love to talk about last night's win? Because the enjoyment of the victory and of their team is not complete until I get to share it with other people, right? How miserable it would be if we experience a win over our big rival and we don't get to talk about it with anyone. That incompletes the enjoyment. It would feel incomplete to experience what we love and not tell someone about it. Praising God is the natural consummation of our enjoyment of God. And this, pray, and this praise goes beyond singing in church, although it's certainly not less than that. For some people, the next step of their Christian maturity is simply singing in church. But for others, we need to ask, do we praise Him with our lives? Do we declare the glory of Christ and praise His name to our families and friends and neighbors? Are we committed to spreading the praise of His glory and of His salvation to the nations? If C.S. Lewis is right, and praise is the completion of our enjoyment of God, then a lack of praise could mean that there's a lack of delighting in God. A lack of praise, a lack of telling others of His glory, might indicate we need to understand deeper and higher the depths of our sin and the heights 
of His mercy. Now, please hear me out. This is not meant to come off as condemning, but it's an invitation. It's an invitation to run to Christ and to behold His glory and love for you and His humility in accomplishing your salvation on the cross. It's an invitation to understand His humility and His greatness and to be more full of awe and adoration of our humble and mighty King. More applicably, perhaps this would be a good week to invite a friend or two to commit to praying for one another that you would behold the glory of Christ more so that the natural result in your daily life would be praise. You see, the Pharisees see this praise going on. I mean, they will not stand for it. They implore Jesus to tell his disciples to be quiet. They think it's shocking and horrific that they would proclaim him to be the Messiah. But yet, Jesus' response is shocking and kind of borderline confusing, right? If you look at verse 40, he says, I tell you, if these were silent, the disciples, the very stones would cry out. You see, what Jesus is saying is that the truth about him is so powerful that his grace and what what he has done and his works is so mighty that it is inevitable that his people will praise him and that it can't be stopped by those who rebel against him. There is no stopping the praises of Christ ringing out from his church. His people will sing out and they will tell others of his glory even at the cost of their own life. A church father said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. In those moments where people have tried to stop the praises of God, the only thing they've done is helped increase the praises of God and extend the praises of God among the nations. And so don't miss the rebuke here in Jesus' words. He says that if the disciples were to have their praise silenced, that the rocks would cry out. He doesn't say the Pharisees would cry out. He doesn't say the scribes would cry out. The irony that Jesus is pointing out in the words of Bach is this. Creation is aware of Jesus, but the leadership of the nation is not. That which is lifeless knows life when it sees it, even though that which is living does not. The Pharisees are missing it. They have become the rebellious citizens in the parable of the ten minas that we read last week. It's even more ironic because in Psalm 118, the very psalm the disciples are quoting, it says that the builders who rejected the cornerstone, uh, they have rejected him. What the Pharisees are doing is they are becoming the builders who are rejecting the cornerstone. In Psalm 118, it was the nation to oppose Israel. But now we see the fulfillment of that in being those who oppose not Israel, but Christ. That the very ones who should have spotted the Messiah when they saw him, missed him. He didn't fit into their expectations, and so they rejected him. As Jesus enters the city, that's where verse 40 ends us on, as he enters into the city, he is welcomed as a king by his disciples. Yet in just five days' time, he will be dragged out by the nation and its leaders as an imposter. He is carried on the back of a donkey, but in five days' time, he will leave the city with a cross on his back. This is the king. This is the king who has stepped down out of glory to redeem for himself a people who will praise him and love him. And for the unbelieving world, this gospel is foolishness. 
It is offensive to many that salvation is not found in our works or how good we can be, but it is only found when we repent and when we realize that we cannot save ourselves. We must trust upon the finished work of Christ. Yet for those who do believe, this king riding upon a borrowed colt into the holy city is the king of the universe. And he is the king who has come in the name of the Lord. And because that is true, every human who has ever lived must answer the question, what do I think of Jesus of Nazareth? Do I believe him to be the Christ as he has announced himself to be? Am I trying to edit him into someone or something that's more manageable, that's more easy to believe in? Or will I reject him outright? But for the people of God who have experienced his mercy, we will praise him. We will praise him as our humble and as our mighty king because praise is inevitable. It's the only proper response to the grace that we have received. 